Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining. We've got a great show for you this evening with a return guest, Justin E.H. Smith, who was on the show on May 27, 2019, talking about his book at that time, his new book, Irrationality, A History of the Dark Side of Reason. Um, Justin E.H. Smith is, is a writer and a historian, and I don't know if he would consider himself a philosopher, but certainly well-versed in philosophy. He's a professor at the University of Paris, which gives him a, a unique view onto things, um, and that comes up in our conversation that I'm going to be playing here shortly. We had a, we had a good chat uh, almost three years ago about irrationality and what technology is doing uh, to our expectations for rationality. You can go back in the archives and listen to that conversation. The archives are at wfmu.org, uh, or you can find that interview at the Tectonic site, which is at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm. He has now come out with a new book, and this, in a way, picks up where he left off. I don't know if he would, uh, if he would put it exactly that way, but it, there are some common themes, and there's uh, one major common character who I'll tell you about. <laughs> the new book is called The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, A Warning. And so this, this conversation we're going to be having, I'm telling you this context to kind of um, give, you, give you some, uh, prepare you a little bit for the structure of the interview in much like the subtitle says, a history of philosophy, a warning, we're going to start with a history of the internet, a brief history of the internet. But just think about it before I play the interview. Think if you were going to write a history of the internet, or if you were just going to describe to someone just informally the history of the internet, where would you start? What time period would you start in, in, in uh, your attempt to explain the history of the internet. I think you'll find that Smith has taken it much further back than, you, than most of us would take it. And it's a very thoughtful account, so we'll, we'll uh, touch on that. And along the way, we are going to meet up again with a character who appeared in Irrationality and, in fact, in our May 2019 interview. And uh, there's a link to his <laughs> Wikipedia page if you want to uh, read up. It's Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who was a German mathematician and philosopher and scientist uh, who was working at the end of the 1600s, so, so late 17th century. And there, there's a very good reason why Leibniz comes up again in this conversation about the Internet. Again, first talking about the history, and then we go into the philosophy. And perhaps we'll get to a warning as well before the end. Why don't we go ahead and listen to this interview with Justin E.H. Smith about his new book, The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History of Philosophy, A Warning. And if you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to wfmu.org and click playlist and comments. Here's the interview here on Tectonic on WFMU.
Justin E.H. Smith, welcome back to Tectonic. Thanks, I'm delighted to be back. It's great to have you back. Uh, for listeners who missed your first appearance on the show, you were on on May 27, 2019, talking about your previous book, Irrationality, A History of the Dark Side of Reason. Mm-hmm. And now, not quite three years later, you have another book. It's called mm-hmm. The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, A Warning. Much like Irrationality, I really enjoyed the book and the broad range of ideas you're bringing to bear on this topic of the Internet. But I thought where we could start, Justin, is with the first part of that subtitle, Mm -hmm. with the Internet as a history. You're making the provocative point that, in a way, the Internet is nothing new Mm -hmm. because humans have been dreaming of a connected and computational digital system for much longer than going back to, let's say, DARPA in the 1960s. Tell me about some of the early thought that has led to what we now consider the Internet. Well, right. I think uh, much of the spirit of the book is to try to do what might be better called not a history, but a prehistory or a deep history of the Internet and to show people that in certain respects, at least, it's been around much longer than they think. In other respects, it's new and we'll probably get to those newer respects later. But let's periodize it. The most recent period, which we'll put aside for now, I would date roughly 2012 or thereabouts to the present, so the past decade. The period before that is already prehistoric, but I would date from, say, uh, the DARPA and then the real kind of concretization of these old dreams to 2012. Before that, I would date the earlier period to 1678 as its beginning point. Before that, I would say 4000 BC, roughly, when people start uh, encoding their thoughts in uh, writing, and maybe even earlier with the dawn of, uh, say, symbolic culture and material traces left behind. But before that, we can go back even further, and I would say it's with um, the kind of history of evolution itself. And that's what I try to push in maybe the most radical chapter, which was excerpted in Wired magazine a few weeks ago that human communication networks are somewhat like an outgrowth or excrescence of our species-specific activities and develop in continuity with other such systems that we can find throughout living nature. So we don't need to go back that far. We won't go to mycorrhizal networks connecting tree roots in forests and so on. We can start in 1678, right? That's already plenty early for some people. Um, and that is indeed the the around the moment that Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, uh, uh, Leibniz around 1678 is developing his so-called reckoning engine using only mechanical dials um, is able to do effectively what a what a calculator could do today. But because at the same time, he's also thinking about uh, the b- binary calculus at the same time, he understands that 
at least in principle, whatever a calculator uh, is able to do now uh, could also be expanded into information processing by use of the binary calculus and translation of information into sequences of zeros and ones, right? So putting that together with the burgeoning interests in the same period in finding some kind of telecommunication mechanism, even though that wouldn't start developing until the beginning of the 19th century, we have people already uh, working out an idea of what would become the internet. This is the second book you've written that features Leibniz, mm-hmm. drawing on some of the uh, these ideas. But one of the new insights that I got from you in this book mm-hmm. is that Leibniz, and again, you're, you're talking about how in the 1600s, Leibniz is already thinking about binary systems, binary mm-hmm. computation, yeah. the, the use of ones and zeros to power computational conclusions. But as you're saying, he was imagining things Mm -hmm. that couldn't possibly be built with the hardware that they had at the time, but a lot of it came to pass. And one of the things that Leibniz said that I appreciated you pointing out in this book is that in the future, when we fully build out these digital systems, all of the drudgery Mm-hmm. is going to be handled all the computational drudgery of, you know, accounting or bookkeeping or whatever is going to be handled by these machines. Amazing. That's mm-hmm. in the 17th century someone saying that. But he says the drudgery will be handled so that human beings can be freed to think big thoughts. Now that's yeah. not a direct quote. <laughs> right. Um, right, right, right. But the idea was the computers will do the boring stuff so yeah. that humanity will be able to aspire towards something bigger. And the punchline to all this is that you point out, you make a a very strong case, that what's happened instead is that we have taken the drudgery of digital computation and Mm -hmm. we have elevated that Mm -hmm. to what we aspire towards. And we have called it artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now we're organizing society in Mm -hmm. a way that nudges people to become more like the drudgery computation machines. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a very good summary of the argument. You said it you said it as well as I could have myself. Um, indeed, Leibniz was extremely optimistic. I mean, he was optimistic in general. They were already making fun of him um, in the 18th century. Voltaire's Candide, the, the novella, um, features a character named Pangloss, who is a caricature of Leibniz. Uh, so, you know, for, for mocked for saying that this is the best of all possible worlds. Voltaire misunderstood Leibniz. He's unfair to him. Uh, don't listen to Voltaire <laughs> on this point. But uh, the general point stands that Leibniz is an optimist. And nowhere is this clearer than in his vision of um, uh, the possible uh, utility uh, for uh, human beings and the contribution to the improvement of society that what I call uh, the 
uh, the outsourcing of reasoning or the outsourcing of reasoning to machines um, will have, right? So he believed that there's a good portion of our reasoning uh, operations that can be um, mechanically instantiated. And wherever that's the case, they should be mechanically instantiated because that will free us up for contemplation of good and beautiful things, right? Which is really what matters for human beings. So it's quite surprising seeing a great mathematician saying this, that, you know, ultimately, at least arithmetic, um, geometry is another issue, but at least arithmetic is not something one, a self-respecting adult ought to have to do, right? Um, and so you outsource it to machines and um, and then it frees you up. Uh, and he was very extreme about this. And the famous phrase that he used is calculemus in Latin. It's a, a hortatory. It's an injunction. It's like, let us calculate. And he thought that someday that's what even, uh, say, two diplomats might say right before their respective empires are, are about to go to war. Well, let's just punch into our machine the respective positions of each empire and we'll see which one is right. And in that way, our machines are going to be able to forestall the breakout of war and bring everlasting peace. Now, today, it is the internet bringing everlasting peace? Hell no, it's doing uh, arguably the opposite. And indeed, the internet is part now of, let's say, the broader armory of any uh, national defense system, right? So now digital warfare or cyber warfare is warfare proper, right, in in many respects. Not only that, but that image of the two diplomats, which, as you say, Leibniz wrote about explicitly, is taking place in a way in the prosecution of war now mm -hmm. as algorithmically determined targeting systems mm -hmm. are yeah. beginning to be deployed to allow drones to automatically identify and then yeah. fire on targets on the ground. And yeah. it's just ironic that Leibniz, again, was looking at computational systems as a way to get the boring rational work out of the way to free mm -hmm. up humans to, to live a richer life and for society to be uh, richer. I don't mean economically richer, but, yeah. you know, as you say, more focused on truth and beauty. And instead, what we have is a society that has accepted Leibniz's premise of mm -hmm. computation mm -hmm. and has not <laughs> used that to free up anything else. It's just right. sucked everything into the computational algorithmic paradigm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's why I see a very long arc to this history. And of course, it has very much to do with the period in which Leibniz was writing, the end of the 17th, the beginning of the 18th centuries. Leibniz is born uh, kind of in the uh, wake of the Thirty Years' War and the extreme violence um, that rocked the continent for decades. And his principal mission in life is the reunification of the Protestant and Catholic churches, which was 
so to speak, the deep cause of the various wars he was thinking about. So all of this effort towards um, establishing peace in Europe was in the wake of destruction and was also in a period of tremendous uh, optimism in general, not just for Leibniz, but in general, the sentiment was they're thinking for the first time who cares about antiquity? We're actually doing things better now. We're building better machines. We're managing society better. And it's just going to keep moving along that path, right? Where have I heard that recently? Where have I heard that? That we're building a new society and the machines are going to usher in. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds familiar somehow. It's it's a familiar theme, but I mean, I would, I would argue that that one had better, even though he turned out to be wrong, one had better grounds for such optimism in 1678 than in 2022. Anyone who believes that today is pretty myopic. Well, we may not believe it, Justin, but I want to bring up something else you wrote recently Mm -hmm. that shows the extreme degree to which we have accepted one part of the premise that we should Mm -hmm. organize society around these algorithmic models to keep things in in check or in balance. What I'm thinking of is um, you you write a Substack blog. And as Mm -hmm. I say often on the show, I don't like Substack, um, (laughs) but I I do like many of the uh, authors who I subscribe to. And I do subscribe Mm -hmm. to your Substack, Justin. It's called Justin E.H. Smith's Hinternet. That's yeah. internet with an H at the beginning, and uh, I'll put a link to that Substack on the playlist. Apparently, there's there's also there are also fans of ham radio who use the term internet for something else. So it's not my original term, but uh, still, I can make it my own. I hope the internet. That's fine. The the piece that I wanted to bring up is from March 19 that you wrote on your Substack called. The very possibility of nuclear war. Oh, yeah. I believe, if I remember right, um, you you were born in 1972. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I yeah. think I I think I mentioned that in the previous interview. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's that that's my birth year. And Justin, you know, there are not very many of us who were born in that year. Right, um, right. Slump, <laughs> de- yeah. Demographically, it was it was a, a low point. Mm-hmm. But being born in 1972, you and I share some intense early memories at a formative time growing up of living under the specter of instant annihilation through a Cold War nuclear exchange. And now with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and tensions Mm -hmm. are still very high, you wrote this piece Mm -hmm. on March 19 Mm -hmm. about that that nuclear specter returning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I read that piece and I thought, I'm glad you wrote that because it gives voice to those few of us who, who remember mm-hmm. that, that part of the 1980s. And it shows, in my opinion, I don't know if you feel this way, but just how insane it is yeah, to yeah, yeah. consider that the algorithms and the digital hardware and software with these gratuitously, crazily large nuclear arsenals mm-hmm. on both sides are... Just they're on a knife edge. All you need is for one bit of the computational process to go awry and yeah. it could all be over. And yeah. in a way that heart, this is not what Leibniz was hoping for or writing, yeah. but in a way there is a legacy back to Leibniz that leaves us in this perverse 
outcome of the two diplomats. Now we have two yeah. ICBM uh, algorithms looking at each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think in my previous book, which we talked about three years ago, Irrationality, I I, I mentioned the, the poet James Merrill's wonderful line in uh, The Changing Light at Sandover, I think, um, about prying open nature's thorns, prying through nature's thorns, in order to get at what we want inside. And then his final line of the stanza um, is something, something, draw breath and speak new formulae of mega death or something like that, which before the hard rock band was uh, a term used to describe a million deaths um, in a global cataclysm. The idea that we are prying through thorns that is something we're stubbornly ignoring the signs that nature gives us to stay out of this or that domain and, and just pushing right past for the sake of knowledge is, of course, very much the spirit of the scientific revolution, um, which gets going um, in earnest around the beginning of the 17th century. And you have figures like Francis Bacon, the philosopher, not the painter, who are very, very adamant about this. They say, we have to get over all the squeamishness of the medievals and he uses metaphors of sexual aggression and we have to violate nature right we have to we have to uh, push into her even when everything is telling us keep out right bacon is very clear about that it's extremely aggressive so this is what makes experimental science the gold standard from circa 1600 on where it's not just watching what nature does, but it's also making nature do what it wouldn't ordinarily do, right? Um, and that then is part of the legacy of building machines to think for us and eventually of building automated weapon systems. This starts to be explicit. One of my new favorite characters is Norbert Wiener, of course, the author of Cybernetics, uh, the very important work of 1948, who adds an appendix in the early 1960s. And he's very, very fond of Leibniz. Leibniz is very much his patron saint, like mine. Um, but he also says uh, very explicitly that uh, once you start teaching machines to learn chess, as they already were by the early 1960s, there's no stopping them. They're, they're going to jump the fence sooner or later and start uh, doing other things. In particular, chess is not an innocent game. It's a first run of training machines up to do war games, right? And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst, your host, and we are halfway through my interview with Justin E.H. Smith. He's a professor at the University of Paris. He's been on the show before, and this evening he's talking to me about his new book, The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, a Philosophy, a Warning 
We're having a good conversation on the comments board. If you'd like to join in, go to WFMU.org. Click playlist and comments. If you're listening in the future to an archive or a podcast of this, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and you can find the April 4, 2022 episode and read the comments there, as well as the links to Justin's work on the playlist. Let's go ahead and listen to the rest of this interview with Justin E.H. Smith here on Tectonic on WFMU. What I'm reflecting on as you're speaking there is a categorical difference that you've now written about in, in both of your two recent books and in some of your Substack messages, this, this difference between knowledge and wisdom or, yeah, sure. or maybe yeah. the uh, power, the raw power we can derive from our tools, in this case our computational tools, versus the moral dimension of whether we should be building some of these things. Um, yeah, yeah. One of the many sources that you quoted in your previous book that we talked about three years ago was a, a quote by St. Paul in which mm. he wrote, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you think about that, that distinction, however you want to categorize those, mm-hmm. the, the two sides there, and you apply it to some of the thinking about artificial intelligence mm-hmm. today, yeah. you would think that <laughs> after over 300 years of Leibnizian mm-hmm. thought and all the history that has followed, that some of the experts might have achieved some level of wisdom on this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, seeing the sins of colonialism that were fueled in part by what Francis Bacon was writing that in that worldview. Instead, you write that the new tech experts are leaning ever further into the worship of the tools themselves. W- one example that you give is this this idea called simulation theory. Which yeah, is a yeah. Completely, in my opinion, completely stupid and crackpot idea that we are actually living in a kind of a video game where our whole world is a digital simulation of some sort. Yeah. And you write, and I enjoyed this quite a bit simulation theory itself has evident historical parallels to medieval angelology. <laughs> and you continue the new priestly class, by which you mm-hmm. mean the new tech experts and AI boosters. The new priestly class is generally unaware of the ways in which it is recycling old tropes. Mm-hmm. What are you trying to tell us? I think I feel like this is part of the warning in the subtitle yeah. of the book. What are you trying to warn us against in, in these old tropes that the tech elite are trying to foist on us? Well, I mean, I could, I could go on and on about this. Obviously, it would be quite a coincidence if the universe itself happened to share in the same nature as a technology that has only been around for, you know, depending on you count how you count 500 years, 400 years, right. uh, but not that long. It's really only started to impress us culturally, arguably, since what, I don't know, the 1970s. Um, it's only become omnipresent in the past 10 or 15 years. So wouldn't it be strange if this technology were also the way the universe itself is? It would just be mind-blowingly uh, coincidental. So plainly, the fact that Elon Musk and others 
consider it highly probable, as they like to say, that the universe is a video game has something to do with the fact that they were playing Pac-Man and Donkey Kong or whatever like we were, right? The fact that they can't get out of that historical contingency of their own image is just a form of infantilism, really. I try to show that this isn't the first time that indeed, I I mean, the most obvious example is that in the 17th century, people loved to say that the universe is a clockwork, right? Why a clockwork? Well, because they were really impressed with chronometric technologies that had recently developed. They were so impressed, in fact, that they um, they took this as the model of the world itself. So we're going through something very familiar, which is really just a form of pride or self-love um, or myopia, right? And that's just so obvious if you know a bit of history that it can be dismissed out of hand (laughs) i can't wait for spatulas to become the next big thing (laughs) and and then the the spatula elite will say we have discovered a new philosophy you know the entire universe is one giant spatula (laughs) yeah the thing is i mean if you look from a comparative anthropological perspective you do find expressions of ideas that are no less implausible to us People get impressed with cultural artifacts for culturally embedded reasons that look nonsensical to us. And honestly, the idea that the world is a video game is just as nonsensical, at least as an actual commitment. It's interesting as a cultural phenomenon to be studied anthropologically, but to agree with these people, no way. Now, you're you're mentioning different philosophers and philosophies that you're drawing on. Um, I should note that you are a professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Paris. Mm -hmm. That leads me to bring up something that I have been wanting to talk about on Tectonic for a while, and Mm -hmm. I've never had a guest who I thought would be interested, and I know you are, because you've written about this one author in this one book quite a bit in your Substack, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to hear who this is. I have no idea this, <laughs> who it's going to be. The book is "In Search of Lost Time" by Marcel Proust. Oh yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I, if I could just geek out for a second, <laughs> I read all seven volumes over about three years. Oh, wonderful. And I finished the final book during the pandemic, during lockdown here in New York, Mm -hmm. and which was a good time to to do the final sprint through it because it, it's it's a long book for uh, listeners who don't know what is it um, four four thousand pages. It's hard to say. I mean, it's it's seven volumes of four to five hundred pages each. Yeah, so around four thousand pages, and as I continued through your book, I realized mm. that the book was saying something other than what I expected at the beginning. Yeah. I This is my connection point. I mm-hmm. had a similar experience reading Proust in that it's, as I say, about 4,000 pages. And in the last 50 pages, mm-hmm. he reveals something 
that casts the entire book mm -hmm. in a brand new light and you realize what he was doing was something else and it was yeah. mind-blowing. Right, right, It was right, one right, of the yeah. greatest reading experiences of my life because <laughs> what he actually did in In Search of Lost Time is something so fundamental and universal. Right. And it's amazing that he did it because he started with such a local and particular set of observations and it yeah. turns into this work that encompasses all of humanity in a yeah, way. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> I could go and, on. <laughs> no, no, that's that's such a beautiful way to put it. And yeah, I mean parts of it are indeed a long slog, right? And you do start to wonder, why should I learn so much about the precise social codes that reigned at formal dinner events among the French aristocracy circa 1910? Um, and uh, this is so, so far from my experience. And Little by little, indeed, I think before you get to the end of the, the last 50 pages of, of volume seven, you start to detect the universality of it, as you put it, here and there. There are brief flashes where the narrator breaks from these social codes to talk about something like the profound truth disclosed by music or something like that. And you realize that there's another reason why we're slogging through these details. So hang in there, basically. You're absolutely right. I will point out that Proust comes up, I noted three or four times in your book, in, in the context of attention. And yeah. you're, you're talking about the importance now that the internet has infiltrated all aspects of our life, our power of attention is really under assault. And something like Proust helps you expand your powers of sustained attention. Yeah. Well, here I have a few colleagues to uh, credit. One is my, my colleague and friend in the history of science at Princeton named Graham Burnett, uh, with whom I organized a colloquium a year ago, and we're coming out with a volume precisely on the topic of attention from philosophical, anthropological, historical, and also kind of media critical perspectives. Uh, so this is the fruit of some hardcore academic labor. Uh, so that's one angle. And also here in France, uh, a colleague and friend named Yves Citon, who in 2014 wrote a really nice book called The Ecology of Attention. He gives us a really nice genealogy, you might say, of our current crisis of attention. He's very, very harsh about this. He doesn't mince his words. He says that we're living in a global economy dominated by attention extraction as a primary resource. I don't know if you can call it a natural resource, but today the economy runs on attention extraction the way it has long run on, say, the extraction of gold and silver and oil, right. right? Literally, this isn't a metaphor. This is literal. This is a slow development. You know, we've had urban advertisement landscapes for a couple of centuries, but it has become a whole different beast at the moment that advertisement became uh, algorithmic and 
operated on feedback loops with individuals. And ultimately, as I argue, this is more me than Yves Citon, trains individuals up to conceptualize themselves as advertisements, or as we often hear, as brands. I even went on a podcast recently that gave me instructions in advance telling me to show my brand in its best light. So, you know, this is just common jargon that is not at all innocent. This is the ultimate triumph of the feedback looping of algorithmic advertisement, where we now start to mimic the mechanism that has captured our attention. So indeed, it is a real crisis. And what I want to say at the individual level, the reason why it's both a global tragedy and also a tragedy for each individual, is that it deprives us of a certain previously important opportunity to cultivate our faculty of attention from which something truly human emerges. Forget about being able to write a 7,000 page no- or a 4, 4 to 5,000 page novel, just be- being able to read one is a true marathon. And what's distinctive about it is that you know, I, I distinguish attention and, and observation. I say you, you say to me, I'm observing the apple on the table, or I've observed there's an apple on the table. One ordinarily takes away from that that you have duly noted that there is an apple on the table, and that's the end of it. Attention, by contrast, I'm attending to the apple on the table. That sounds old fashioned, but you can still say it. I'm attending to the apple on the table means that you're going to come away from that maybe with a different kind of take on what apples are in their essence. Maybe you can even push this further with a different understanding of who you are in relation to external objects or external entities, right? So that's attention. And that's something that the internet has been set up so as to not let us cultivate for our own interest. Yes, as you write early in the book, bare observation without attention leaves the observer unchanged. Yeah, that's that's a summary of what I was just trying to say in a more long-winded fashion. Yeah, yeah. It leaves us unchanged, whereas if you do something like read Proust, as you know, What's important about it is that it doesn't confirm your expectations. It doesn't um, congratulate you. Um, It doesn't uh, do anything but um, allow you, if you're willing, to come into that world, or, you know, maybe another metaphor is to open yourself up to it. And that's something that you don't control and you don't, you don't know in advance what the outcome is going to be like. Yes. You, if you develop your sustained attention to work your way through all 4,000 pages of Proust, you will leave a changed person. Right, exactly, exactly. And of course, Proust is an extreme example of this, but an apple on the table, or anything for that matter, might get you there as well. Right. right? (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't have to be Proust. (laughs) Right. Well, Justin, we could keep going, but in the interest of time, I've got to I've got to leave it there, and I hope you'll yeah. be back on Tectonic. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. This has been fantastic. Thank you for coming back to the show, and I want to recommend your book to Tectonic mm-hmm. listeners. It's called 
The internet is not what you think it is, a history, a philosophy, a warning. There's also a link on the playlist to your Substack called Justin mm-hmm. E.H. Smith's Hinternet. We didn't have time to talk about your own podcast, but you also host a podcast called What is X for The Point magazine, and that'll yeah. that'll have a link on the playlist as well. Yeah. So, Justin, thanks again for being with us and hope you'll come back sometime. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. I'll come back soon. just joining us you just heard the end of my interview with justin e.h smith author of the new book the internet is not what you think it is a history a philosophy a warning and by the way you're listening to tectonic on wfmu we had a great where you still are having a great conversation on the comment board at wfmu.org a lot of comments from listeners. We even got some comments from uh, a listener named The Spatula Elite. I knew they were out there. I knew it. And, and, and they're listening and they're commenting, pushing their spatula-oriented theories on all of us. Well, anyway, you're still welcome. Uh, <laughs> thanks again to Justin E.H. Smith for being on the show again, and as I said in the interview, I have posted links to his work on the playlist at WFMU.org. There's a link to the book, of course, but also his uh, Substack blog called Justin E.H. Smith's Hinternet, and he's got a podcast as well, which is interesting, and we simply didn't have time to get into it, but it's called What is X, and there's a link to that on the playlist. Um, I want to thank everyone for humoring me on that uh, Proust digression. As I said to Justin, I had been waiting for someone to uh, talk to about Proust because, I, I don't know, I was always um, enthusiastic about it as I was going through, and I was very excited to complete the reading and had that epiphany at the end. But um, all kidding aside, I think it, it is relevant to what we were talking about. And, and Proust actually does come up several times in Justin's book because of what Justin was saying, that, that uh, such a long literary work, and it doesn't have to be Proust, but it, any kind of long literary work like that really puts a challenge on the reader to develop uh, the skill of sustained attention. And the, the challenge is that in the age of the internet, as, as Justin said in the interview, and he writes in some detail in his book, uh, our power of attention is under assault. And as he says, it's, it's both an individual crisis and a society-level crisis. And what the Internet does is it surveils us to find out what, what our buttons are, so to speak, what really gets us, uh, quote-unquote, engaged, which is to say uh, inflamed or angry or outraged or, uh, or active in some way like that. And then it just amplifies the content, much like turning a dial on a machine. Uh, the internet will turn a dial on us to, to get us more engaged. Well, something like Proust, uh, uh, In Search of Lost Time, does the opposite. It says, I, the, it says, I don't care who you are. 
this is the work and you either climb this mountain or you don't. It's nothing to me. You're not going to get any badges. There's no gamification and there's no surveillance along the way and no manipulation. You can either experience this or not. And if you want to, it's going to be a slog in places. It's going to be difficult. And I guess you could, you could apply that kind of pattern to a lot of things in life, not just long books, but, um, you know, literal marathons, I guess. But the point I think Justin is trying to make in his book, one of the points is that with attention under assault, that is one way for us to understand what the Internet actually is in the sense of the title of the book. The Internet is not what you think it is. Um, and it's not just one thing. It's not just an assault on attention, but that is one of the aspects. And we should pay some serious attention, so to speak, to that as a problem. Uh on another point, Justin asks earlier in the interview rhetorically, is the Internet bringing everlasting peace? <laughs> because in the history part, we learned that uh, Leibniz's earliest uh, impulse was to create a computational system that would allow diplomats to calculate their way out of conflict. And if we look around the world today, uh, we, we look at uh, Russia's unjust uh, war and, and invasion in Ukraine. Uh, and there's a, there, I put a link on the playlist from Wired on March 17. Russia's killer drone in Ukraine raises fears about AI and warfare. Um, it's not just Russia. There was, some, uh, th there was an earlier article about a possible American drone in Libya. But this being a, a much more timely story right now, let's, let's talk about whether Russia is using drones that, that uh, have weaponized AI on board that are doing automated targeting and deployment of explosives without any human in the loop. What does that mean for the future of warfare? And the, when we think about the nuclear arsenals, the future of humanity, indeed life on the planet, when you have computational systems that are being deployed to automatically uh, create death or, as Justin brings up, megadeath. This is not what Leibniz was hoping for. In fact, it is just the opposite. And it's interesting to read back to, in, in Justin's book, read back to the 17th century when people had such high hopes for the binary calculus to make everything clear and rational and uh, calculatable that only good things would happen. Does that sound familiar to you at all? That is very much the kind of attitude <laughs> that I remember coming up in in the mid-1990s. When the web first arrived, we said, Finally, we have a technology that's going to solve everything. It's, now, it wasn't, you know, the binary calculus is going to make everything rational. We didn't use that kind of language. We used other language. But it, the outcome was the same, that you had a whole generation of people fervently believing that the technology they were building was going to lead to utopian-type outcomes. And if we look at where the web has developed by today, it seems like we are learning the same lesson that that uh, Leibniz's successors learned as digital computers were first coming online, calculating things so that we can deploy uh, vast arsenals of nuclear weapons does not make the world into a utopia. So it's, it's a very thoughtful book. It's an interesting account and gives, as I said, some, some new angles on the Internet and ways to think about it. Um, 
I'll, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll just leave it there. There are links on the playlist if you want to do some more reading. Um, I wanted to, I have a couple of news stories if I have time, but I wanted to do something that I have been looking forward to for a few months to change gears just a little bit, or maybe uh, only tangentially because this has something to do with what we were talking about with Justin. Uh, this is, today is April 4, and so this episode of Tectonic is the first of April 2022, and April is National Poetry Month here in the United States. And uh, I have come across some great poetry in the last year that has to do with show themes. And I want to read a poem to you this evening. I want to try it out, and you can tell me on the, on the uh, comment board at WFMU.org, or you can send me a note at mark at WFMU.org if you want. Tell me what you think of this. If you like it if, it, if it enriches your tectonic experience, I have a bunch more and I could do one per show during the month of April. But this one I thought was really pertinent. If this is the only one I read to you, I wanted to read this one. It's a poem by the English author D.H. Lawrence. Yes, Lady Chatterley's lover, uh, uh, author. He also wrote a bunch of poetry, which I, I, I'm sorry to say I wasn't... Uh, initially aware of, but I came across this, this poem, and it reads just as pertinent as when he wrote it, which I believe was in 1930. The poem is called The Triumph of the Machine, and I'll, I'll read it to you now. They talk of the triumph of the machine, but the machine will never triumph. Out of the thousands and thousands of centuries of man, the unrolling of ferns, white tongues of the acanthus lapping at the sun. For one sad century, machines have triumphed, rolled us hither and thither, shaking the lark's nest till the eggs have broken, shaken the marshes till the geese have gone and the wild swans flown away, singing the swan song at us. Hard, hard on the earth, the machines are rolling, but through some hearts, they will never roll. The lark nests in his heart, and the white swan swims in the marshes of his loins, and through the wide prairies of his breast a young bull herds his cows, lambs frisk among the daisies of his brain. And at last, all these creatures that cannot die, driven back into the uttermost corners of the soul, will send up the wild cry of despair. The thrilling lark in a wild despair will trill down arrows from the sky. The swan will beat the waters in rage, white rage of an enraged swan. Even the lambs will stretch forth their necks like serpents, like snakes of hate against the man and the machine. Even the shaking white poplar will dazzle like splinters of glass against him. And against this inward revolt of the native creatures of the soul, Mechanical man, in triumph, seated upon the seat of his machine, will be powerless, for no engine can reach into the marshes and depths of a man. So mechanical man, in triumph, seated upon the seat of his machine, will be driven mad from within himself, and sightless, and on that day the machines will turn to run into one another, traffic will tangle up in a long, drawn-out crash of collision, and engines will rush at the solid houses 
The edifice of our life will rock in the shock of the mad machine, and the house will come down. Then, far beyond the ruin, in the far, in the ultimate remote places, the swan will lift up again his flattened, smitten head and look round and rise, and on the great vaults of his wings will sweep round and up to greet the sun with a silky glitter of a new day, and the lark will follow trilling, angerless again, and the lambs will bite off the heads of the daisies for very friskiness. But over the middle of the earth will be the smoky ruin of iron, the triumph of the machine. The Triumph of the Machine by D.H. Lawrence. Here on Tectonic by WFM... <laughs> by... Here on Tectonic on WFMU, I hope you found that interesting. I really love that poem. I think you can tell. And happy National Poetry Month, everybody. Um, I wanted maybe just on the topic of the triumph of the machine, just give you uh, one or no, two quick news bits. One is if you want to leave this... <laughs> But want to leave uh, behind your triumph of the machine, your smoky ruin. On this Saturday, April 9, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, there's an event called Slices for Devices, which is allowing customers to exchange their old technology for pizza and cash <laughs> at Zazzy's Pizza, Lower East Side, from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. And thanks to listener uh, Herb from the Lower East Side Ecology Center for telling me so if you have had it with the triumph of the machine and you are ready to metaphorically hurl your device into the Hudson River, instead, go down to Slices for Devices and get some pizza for it. And finally, big, big, big congratulations to the workers at Amazon on Staten Island here in New York City who voted by a wide margin to unionize and a landmark win for labor as, as called by the New York Times on April 1st, not an April Fool's story. And that just brings us full circle from that horrible Amazon HQ2 debacle from a few years ago when they asked all of us in New York State to give them a several billion dollar bribe to if they claimed to bring jobs here. We, we turned them down. They brought the jobs anyway. And now we in New York City have formed the first labor union in Amazon history anywhere in the world. And uh, long may those workers be protected and empowered, even as I hope you will stop doing business with Amazon. Which reminds me, friends, you have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. And I want to thank Brother Daniel Blumen once again for helping us out with an outro. This is a song that is called The State. I'm going to bring it up here. The State by Colin Potter. It's got a refrain that you'll hear in about a minute that will sound familiar to all Tectonic listeners. Please stay tuned for The Arbitrarium with DJ Arb coming up in about two minutes. Have a great week, everybody.
You are about to enter the Arbitrarium, where everything is what you think it is not. No, you're not my. It's 